What is Christianity all about? Just kind of get your brains thinking this morning. What is Christianity all about? If you had to, to boil it down, how would you answer that question? Is it a set of truth propositions that need to be embraced? Is it a, a, an ethical behavioral code, a lifestyle that, that must be followed? Is it a certain devotional approach to God? Well, the answer is, of course, that no, it is not any of those things, although all of those things are essential to true Christianity. What is Christianity? I think what we can say is that Christianity at its core is a vital relationship with the living God entered into through faith in the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is. We could really say that Christianity at its heart is about our union with Christ. It's about our union with Christ. And just as the human heart is, the, is that, that organ that, that pumps the life giving blood through our bodies and animates us. So our union with Christ is the most amazing truth that lies really at the core of the Christian faith. In fact, in the words of the theologian John Murray, speaking about union with Christ, he says, our union with Christ, and I quote him here, is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's the central truth that the whole doctrine of salvation is about our union with Christ. So this morning, what I want to do is explore that with you. And in fact, what I'd like to do is explain it, explore it, and apply it, the truth of our union with Christ, so that we might grow ever more in the likeness of him who has saved us. This morning's sermon is not an exposition of a single passage of Scripture. It's, it's more like a Bible study in the sense that we're going to look at lots of passages together. This is the kind of work, actually, that Micah went through in preparation for his ordination exam in order to be able to answer that one single question, what is our union with Christ all about? We will start, though, in explaining it with a passage, and I'll turn you, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2. For if you were in the lightning round, where I were to say, union with Christ, give me a scripture passage that you would go to, you would say Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians 2.20, that would be a passage you would want to go to, and that's where I direct you this morning as we begin. And I want to look together with our union with Christ explained. Our union with Christ explained. Paul writes here in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let's establish a little bit of context before we take a look at this verse. Here in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, a little bit earlier here, beginning in verse 11, speaks of one of the most difficult instances, I think, in the early church, because this 
event following after the Jerusalem Council when it was clearly understood and decided that the Gentiles did not need to come under the Mosaic law in order to be saved, in order to be rightly related to God. Paul now here in Antioch has become influenced, or not Paul, I'm sorry, Peter has become influenced by a group of Judaizers or, or Jewish believers who maybe they're real believers, maybe not. We won't try to figure that out now. But they were certainly of the opinion that the Jewish law still remained a responsibility and a, and a requirement of those who were to follow God. And so they had come, verse 11, and when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw, holding himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. In other words, Peter began to undo by his behaviors, and in particular, the the separation from table fellowship with the Gentiles, he began to undo the reality of the gospel that had been clearly proclaimed and, and affirmed at the Jerusalem Council, which you could find in Acts chapter 15. And Paul goes on here and he says, verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So you can see how dangerous this idea is, is that it was drawing more and more of the early Jewish believers back underneath the law and was subverting the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that salvation is by grace through faith alone in the resurrected Jesus Christ. Verse 14, but when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, so you can imagine this, right? Peter, the head of the apostles, confronted by Paul publicly, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? And he goes on here in this passage. Well, what I'd like to direct you, and I'm not going to take the time to exposit this whole passage, but what I'd like to direct you down to is verse 18, where Paul now explains why Peter is wrong. And in so, he, he lays out the doctrine of our union with Christ. And Paul says here, For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor of the law. In other words, what Paul is saying is, Peter, your reversion back to the kosher laws, the kosher food laws, is a a rebuilding of what you had once destroyed in your meeting with Cornelius the Gentile when you said that I now understand that God is no respecter of persons. In other words, that those living under the Mosaic law have no advantage over the Gentiles. And what... Paul further says here is, is that in effect, when he says, I prove myself to be a transgressor of the law, what he's saying is, Peter, by, by re-adopting these food laws here, you prove that your earlier decision with regard to Cornelius was wrong, that you prove yourself a transgressor. In other words, you are reinstating the law, and you're basically saying that I was wrong before. Now, Paul recognizes here That the answer to this is not the reinstatement of the law because it is the law that condemns. And instead to recognize that that the demands of the law have been fulfilled in Christ. And it's because of our union with Christ and and that the penalty of the law that the law requires 
has been fully extracted, and we are free. Verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. In other words, we don't go back under the law because the penalty that the law requires has been satisfied, and it has been satisfied in Christ. Verse 20, now Paul begins to elaborate a little more on that statement in verse 19, and in the process of doing so, gives us a concise statement of the reality of what it means to be united with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, he says. In other words, that, that Paul says he has died so far as the law is concerned, because he has been crucified with Christ. The law no longer has control over him because he has been crucified with Christ. When? When was Paul crucified with Christ? In what sense was Paul crucified with Christ? Well, in the tense of the verb here, where he says, I have been crucified, we have what's called a, a perfect passive indicative, and, and what that really means is that somewhere in the past, this has happened. And the result of that happenstance is continuing with Paul and continues with him into the future. And it's not something that he did. In other words, he didn't crucify himself, but he was crucified. Something happened to him. He was the recipient the action of the verb. Well, what does he mean? What does Paul mean? I have been crucified with Christ. Here's the answer for you. When Christ was crucified, God identified every person who would ever believe, past, present, future, we call them the elect. They were identified with Jesus in the mind of God. We see passages, for example, in, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, where Paul writes there that he, the Father, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In other words, before God called this creation into existence, he chose us as the elect. In Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, where Paul writes there. If I get to 2 Timothy, that would help. Here we go. It says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So in the mind of God, he reckoned the elect to be united with Christ and to count Christ's death as, in effect, their death, and imputing Christ's righteousness to them and their sin to Christ and punishing it on Jesus. We call it the substitutionary atonement, the substitutionary atonement. Therefore, when Jesus was crucified, the elect were, in effect, legally crucified with him. They were crucified with him. In other words, Jesus' death satisfied the penalty that the broken law demanded for each and every one of the children of God. 
Therefore, the accusing finger of the law no longer has any point of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The full penalty of the law has been fully extracted from Christ for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me illustrate it for you this way. If a man is convicted of a capital crime and put to death, the law has no more claim on him. No more claim. Even if he were to then rise from the dead, he would still be guiltless, for the claim had been satisfied. He would be a guiltless man before the law. There would be no further claim on his new life. And so it is for the Christian. When Christ died, we died with him. And so the law no longer has hold over us. It it no longer can condemn us. The demands of the law have been satisfied in Christ. So when a Christian dies physically, his physical death is not a punishment, but a release to glory, to enjoy the unhindered fellowship with the living God. The wages of sin is death, the scripture says, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. When the believer dies, he sleeps and goes into the presence of God. Beloved, what the Father planned and the Son purchased, you and I obtain experientially when we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ in repentant faith. In other words, what is true of the elect becomes an experiential reality when we are severed from the realm of sin and death and come to live in the the new age, the power of the resurrected Christ. This is God's doing from all of eternity, from before the foundation of the world. And it has been actuated in space and time for each and every one this morning who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say further here in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What Paul's saying here is that having died with Christ, I now live a new life. A life that is radically different than the, than the old life that died. In other words, I live the new life of the age to come through the indwelling presence of the resurrected Christ. It's no longer I live, I who live, but Christ lives in me. Something changed. Something changed. Well, about our union with Christ in his death, when it becomes that experiential reality for each and every one, brings about a a radical transformation, a break from the old and the establishment of the new. It is to be severed from the bondage to the law of God that sits upon us and condemns us and replaces instead with the new life in Christ the indwelling of Jesus himself, and it is a life that is characterized by relying on the power of the indwelling Christ to walk in holiness 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And Paul describes this life, and he says, And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says, The new life now that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who has accomplished this for me and resides within me. In light of that reality, Paul would ask Peter and each and every one of us, why would anyone having experienced the radical transformation of having been crucified with Christ and being severed from the condemnation of the law and raised to walk in a newness of life with Jesus Christ, why would anyone ever want to go back to that old way of living? And the answer is no one in their right mind. No one in their right mind. This is our union with Christ. What I'd like to do now with you is to explore the reality of that. It's a statement, but I'd, li- I'd like to explore the reality of that statement and for you to begin to, to get an idea of how important this doctrine is, how full this doctrine is. I have a quote here from a, a person who is one of the founders of the Wycliffe translation mission, and, and he writes in, in, in reflecting on our union with Christ the following. He says, when a person begins to apprehend what it means to be united to the Son of God, and what he has through this union, he will at once realize that his spiritual growth depends upon a clear understanding of truth rather than experience. He will understand that his spiritual growth depends on a clear understanding of truth rather than an experience. In other words, this is not a dry academic idea of a union with Christ that is only for pointy-headed theologians who have nothing better to do than to write books that nobody reads. This is vital to you and I this morning. This is vital. To grow in the likeness of Christ is not about our experiences. It's not, it's not driven or produced by any kind of emotional responses. It is driven by a contemplation of the reality of what has occurred. And as we begin to understand it and we embrace it by faith, it transforms us. It transforms us. So what I'd like to do with you this morning here is to explore eight vital aspects of our union with Christ. We stated what it is. Now let's just begin to look at it like a diamond. By the way, if you've lost a diamond ring, call the office, right? I think it's a diamond ring. I don't even know. If you've lost a wedding ring, call the office. But like a diamond, it's got a lot of facets, The union with Christ has a lot of facets, and each one is beautiful. So let's begin to take a look at them. The first facet, the first vital aspects of our union with Christ is this, that our union with Christ is a forensic union. This is somewhat to repeat what I've already said, but it's important. It's a forensic union. In other words, it's a legal union. It's a legal union. Every aspect of the application of 
the benefits of salvation come in Christ. In other words, come in union with Christ. He is our legal representative. As such, he acts in our place. He acts in our place. Thus, his perfect righteousness becomes our perfect righteousness. His sacrificial death becomes our death. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus acts as my legal representative. As a child of God, he acts as your legal representative. This is the basis, by the way, of how he can take the punishment for your sin. Without this reality being true, it would be exceedingly unjust for God the Father to punish his son for the crimes of someone else. But Jesus is our representative, legally. He stands in for us in the mind of God. Thus, as is written here in a fine book, by the way, that I recommend to you, it's called Biblical Doctrine. Biblical Doctrine. It was published in 2017. Editors are MacArthur and Mayhew. It's a very readable systematic theology. But he writes, it's written in that book here, and I quote, just reflecting on a union with Christ, his life's our life. His punishment, our punishment. His death, our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. His righteousness, our righteousness. His ascension and glorification, our ascension and glorification. Because he's our representative. Christ did not live, die, and rise again for a faceless, nameless group. Redemption was remarkably personal as the body was always reckoned to be united with the head. And he cites Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 and 25. This is, a, this is a legal reality, but it's a very personal legal reality. And that is that in the mind of God, Jesus, if you're a child of God this morning, Jesus is your legal representative. It is a forensic union. It is a legal union. Secondly, it's an effectual union. It's an effectual union. When does the, the legal or the forensic union in Christ become effectual in space and time? When does it go from the mind of God to actualize in space and time? Right? What, when does what was true in the mind of God in eternity past become true in space and time? The answer is at the moment of conversion. At the moment of conversion. Now, you may know personally when that moment was, particularly if you were converted later in life. But others are maybe not as sure. They, they're not able to point to a particular moment, but it doesn't matter. The reality is there was a moment in time when conversion happened. And even though God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, until we respond to the gospel in repentant faith, we remain what is called a, a child of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins, right? 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and following. You were dead, he says, in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. So even though there is the legal union with Christ from before the foundation of the world for the elect, they still do not become Christians until they believe. And up until that time, they remain children of wrath. The new birth happens at a point in time. At a point in time. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It happens at a point in time. And it results from a divine summons, not an optional invitation. In other words, when God the Father decides in his own purposes when to make what has been true legally now true in terms of space and time, that lies with him and not with us. It's a summons to believe, and it's, a, and it's a summons that is not refused. We can look to Paul's words in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, where he says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me with his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me. When God was pleased to reveal his Son in me, when? On the Damascus Road, when Paul was on his way to, to imprison and persecute early believers. You can go to Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Pick it up in verse 29. To those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. If you want an analogy for the calling of God here, you can think about Jesus' words to Lazarus in John 11, where he doesn't say, Lazarus, if you want to, come on out of the grave. Right? He says, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man came alive and came forth from the grave. Our union with Christ is an effectual union. Now, how is it made effectual? How is it made effectual? How does it happen that the dead live again? And the answer is that by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, in other words, that, they, that the Spirit of God breathes life into the dead and regenerates them. It is the new birth, John chapter 3. Right? John chapter 3, with the premier theologian of Israel. In his confrontation or his discussion with Jesus. And Jesus says to him, beginning in verse 5, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. That's not a command to be obeyed. That's a statement of fact. You must be born again. You must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit works in his own ways. And unless and until he works, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, even as the elect of God. But at the moment we are regenerated, at the moment we are born again, we believe in Christ. The, the scales come off our eyes, the ears are unstopped, the heart is flooded with affection for Christ. Him whom we formerly disdained, we now love. And we come to him in repentant faith and are justified, in other words, declared righteous by God and adopted as sons into the family of God. We have a forensic or legal union. We have an effectual union. Third, we have a spiritual union. Our union with Christ is a spiritual union in the sense that it is created and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians, excuse me, verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. In other words, we are, we are constituted a spiritual person in whom Christ dwells through his spirit. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, he says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. It is a spiritual union. Now, that doesn't mean that we just merely agree with Christ or, or that somehow Christ's ideas are in us. Rather, that Christ is really inside of his children. And he remains with us and in us through faith. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Ephesians 3, 17. It's in the middle of Paul's prayer, but he says, verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded with love may be able to comprehend what is the breadth, length, height, and depth to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Test yourselves, Paul says, to see if you were in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or you, do you not recognize, recognize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you? 
unless indeed you fail the test. If you're a child of God this morning, Christ is in you. He is in you. He is the source of your spiritual strength. Right? John says in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The one who conquered death, that broke the back of sin, is in you. He is in you. It's a spiritual union. It's also a supernatural union. That's number four. Supernatural union. What I mean by that is that our union with Christ is not something that can be examined by the five senses, right? Sight, sound, taste, smell, and touch. You can't look at someone and say, oh, yeah, there it is. Christ is in them. It has to be revealed to us through his spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Just as it is written, Paul says, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of men, of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The Bible uses all kinds of analogies, by the way, to to speak of this supernatural union. And they're they're analogies, and and analogies are meant to to communicate a a certain amount of truth, but but analogies have limits to them as well. And so as we, I'm going to look with you, just at a couple of these analogies, and they're very familiar to you, but we need to understand that analogy does not mean identity. In other words, when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, Jesus is not saying that he's a plant growing out of the ground. Okay? There's something about a vine and branches that communicates a truth about our union with Christ. So they make comparisons, but these are not equations. So let's look at that one, John 15 and verse 5. Our supernatural union with Christ, John 15 and verse 5. I am the vine, Jesus says, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So what is he communicating to us? What he's communicating to us is is that dependence upon our union with Christ is essential for spiritual growth. Without depending by faith upon the reality of our union with Christ, we will not produce. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. The parable of the vine and the branches, right? Or how about this one? The, uh, the analogy of the temple. So we could look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 20 to 22. Or God's household, he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building 
being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Or Peter, who picks up and uses the same analogy over in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where he says, Coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are becoming, are, excuse me, are being built up in a, as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, that, that there's something about a building and a foundation and a cornerstone that, that communicates about this supernatural union with Jesus Christ. And what is it? Well, what it is is that in the building, the stones are, are perfectly cut and fit together to produce this, this structure, this building that has integrity to it. And so it's being communicated to us that in our union with Christ, we are also in union with one another. That Christianity is not about just me and Jesus. There is, a, there is a very significant corporate aspect to this. Furthermore, the, the, the strength and, and, the, and the unity of the building is established by the foundation. And the cornerstone itself lays out the dimensions. It's our union with Christ that produces our union with each other. Draws us together. Use the analogy of many members of a body connected to a head, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. Another analogy for us. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. There's, there's something going on here. There's a, there is a body with many members that are, that are one. Just like my body and yours has hands and feet and eyes and ears and nose and all the rest of that, and we're all one. We all work together, we're all cooperating in the, in the growth and development of that body and, in, and administering one to another through that body. Right? The eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Is that what Paul goes on to say, basically? We need each other. We need each other. Because we are in supernatural union with each other through our union with Christ. Paul goes in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 22 through 33, I'm not going to take the time to read it all, but he, he develops the analogy here of marriage. And he says that, that it is the church, it is the, it is the bride of Christ, and, and Christ is the bridegroom. And, and he develops that reality that through marriage, some important truth is being communicated about our union with Christ and our union with one another. Though there are important lessons about leadership and submission and cooperation so forth. The marriage is designed to illustrate of our supernatural union with Christ. So I often tell a bride and a bridegroom when they grant me the privilege of doing their wedding ceremony that their marriage is going to paint a picture for the world of Christ and his church. It's an unavoidable reality. Paint a good one. Paint a good one. Five. 
It is a vital union. It is a vital union. In other words, that our union with Christ is a, is a shared common spiritual life that is so intimate, Paul will talk about it in things like this, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. It's so intimate that we are, we are hidden with Christ in God. He says in Colossians 3, 4, Christ is our life. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, right? Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. Or 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. There's an intimacy here, a, a vitalness to this union in which that life only is found in union with Jesus Christ. In fact, back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, where Paul says that it is in union with Christ that we receive every single spiritual blessing. Right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Christ. Everything is ours. All that God has, he gives to his son. And as adopted sons in union with Christ, he makes it available to us. It's ours. Six, it's a complete union. It is a complete union. Our union with Christ is complete in the sense that it is both a body-soul union with our Lord. It is a body and soul union with our Lord. In other words, that when the Spirit of God indwells the believer, he indwells all of the believer. All of the believer. That's Paul's argument here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where he is instructing the Corinthian believers to, to avoid the, the sexual immorality to which they find themselves drawn. Right? He says, verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members with a prostitute? May it never be. In other words, what this means is, is where I go, Christ goes with me. What I do, Christ does with me. What I see, Christ sees with me. What I say, Christ witnesses. He is with me. And he is with you. It is a complete Union, a complete union. Seven, it is a permanent union. It is a permanent union. It cannot be severed. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will sever this union? Can anyone, anything, sever the union with Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? 
Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, nothing can separate us from Christ. Nothing can separate the union with Christ. Some people will make a foolish statement that says, well, I can, can," you know, it doesn't say that I can't sever it myself. It's a silly statement, by the way. It's a silly statement, particularly in reading what Paul just says here. He scans the entire universe and says there's nothing in the universe that can sever the union with Christ. What made you think you can Paul's argument back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with the prostitute, the temple prostitute. He says in verse 16, Do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? Just thinking about this permanent union. Paul is arguing here and saying, you are united to Christ. You have no business being united to anyone else. But even if you do, that does not sever your union with Christ. It doesn't end. And neither did Peter's denials end his union with Christ. Even death does not separate us from our union with Christ, right? Death is a real severing of body and soul, but it's spoken of as sleep. There's a very real sense in which the separated elements of that one who is united to Christ, body and soul, remain united with Christ and will be reunited with each other. In the resurrection. You just think about this. The bodily resurrection presupposes the body is united to Christ. Otherwise, it would be discarded. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain till the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout of the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Or Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 15, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. God created man, body and soul. Body and soul. He will redeem body and soul, but we are connected to Christ, body and soul. It's a sanctifying union. It's a sanctifying union. In other words, that, that we are created as new people in union with Christ, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. It's a sanctifying union that has made us new. And it has made us new for a purpose. And the purpose for which it has made us new, Paul tells us in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, where he says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These good works are accomplished by faith, right? Galatians 2.20. As new creations in union with Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Sin's former authoritarian control has been severed. That's Paul's whole argument in the sixth chapter of Romans. And that's why in the seventh chapter of Romans, he says, why in the world would you seek to be sanctified by the law? For the law belongs to the old age, and you have been, you have been crucified to it and raised to walk in the newness of life. So chapter 8, walk in the Spirit. That's how you will live out your new life. This is what it means to be in sanctifying union with Christ. We've looked at the union explained, the union explored. Just quickly here, the union applied. The union applied. How does this union with Christ work itself out day to day in my life and yours? Hmm? Well, it works itself out in my battle with sin. I will only be victorious in, in, against in the, sin, the sin and the temptation associated with any particular sin by recognizing and believing and acting in accordance with my union with Christ. In other words, that I have been, I have been crucified with Christ and I am dead to this temptation. It no longer must control me. Before I came to Christ, I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and it ruled me. It no longer has to rule me. When it does, it's because I surrendered to the old ways. Now, I understand the power and, and strength of the old way is strong, but it is not stronger than Christ. It is not stronger than Christ. How do you gain victory? You gain victory by, in faith, walking away and walking towards Christ, recognizing the reality of your union with him. 
There are all kinds of tricks that people propose to help one struggling with lust. But the secret to breaking the dominion of lust in your life is to recognize your union with Christ. Meditate on that reality and you will find the power of that lust has been removed. It's a moment-by-moment fight. Wouldn't it be great if it once for all, huh? Wouldn't it be great? How else do we apply the union with Christ? I think we apply the union with Christ by, by just remembering the reality that Jesus is with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. When you go to work tomorrow morning, you take Christ with you. He is with you. When you go to school, when you study, when you eat, when you sleep, when you, when you recreate, it's all being done in union with Christ. He is with you. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who strengthens me? It is the indwelling Christ. We can apply this truth by reminding ourselves and each other that by virtue of our union with Christ, we are in union with each other. In other words, the the body here at Foothill is in theological union with one another. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of a family of God. That means that we need to work out our differences, that we just can't pick up our marbles and go home and say, I don't like you anymore. You said something or didn't say something or did something or didn't do something and my feelings are hurt and I'm out of here. I'm going to a different restaurant. We're in union with one another. You can't walk away. I think the reality of our union with Christ can be applied in 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 causing us to to ponder the Gospels, drive us to the reading of the Gospels. As As we read about Christ, as we get to know him better as he walked this earth, there is so much to learn and so much to emulate. So much to emulate. Give ourselves to a a serious reading and meditating upon the Gospels. And last, at least for this morning, it is to regularly participate in in the spiritually refreshing rituals that have been given to us by God. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. And it has been given to us as a a symbol to remind us of this most profound theological reality that we are united to Christ and to each other. Let's pray. Father, we barely scratched the surface this morning on this heart of the Christian faith. We pray, Lord, that, that you would renew our passion for this 
that you would deepen our understanding, that our commitment to one another as a res- that results from this reality would grow. Father, may you accomplish your purposes even now in our hearts through the preaching of the word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.